So tonight, as we go through things, uh, we're starting to podcast these. A podcast means that you can't see me. It's just the voice. So if it's really weird where you hear me like, where it looks like I'm talking to myself, like I've got a mental disorder while I'm drawing, <laughs> I don't. Like I'm just saying, I'm drawing a cliff. It looks like a straight line with a right-hand angle. Like I'm not saying that because I think you don't know what's on the board. You can see. I'm talking in such a way because there are going to be people on the podcast that can't see what I'm doing. And I listened to one today and I'm like, I went to the whiteboard just acting like the person who's listening can see what I'm doing. It really was not very effective. So I'm going to, if it seems like I'm just talking to myself, I'm not. I'm just helping the people with the podcast. How are you guys doing? Yeah, so... Yeah, because we have them on videos, but the podcasts are really easy. You can even listen to them at like 1.5 speed, which is kind of nice. Right. Does everybody know how to use their podcast app? You have a podcast app probably on your phone. Just type in Bible Center, and you have the most recent core classes and all the sermons. So it works really well. You just listen to it in your car. Um, but that's a new thing. Like, he didn't tell me that we were putting it on podcasts. He just told me afterwards. So I just found out. So, But what's cool is even just with the last one, we've had... Um, maybe like 60 to 70 people come through, but we had like over almost 100 people watch the, or listen to the last one. So people are, even if they're not here, it's still getting out and people are doing it. So okay. glad to hear that, so that's fun. All right, well, let's go ahead and officially start. This is our third of our three core classes on God's Word. So we're gonna be on page 21. And we've already talked about inerrancy. We've talked about authority. So we believe it's God's word, and if it is God's word, we have to live under its authority. We've talked a little bit about interpretation, because even if these are completely God's words, if we take them out of context and use them incorrectly, there's still error, not in God's word, but in us and in the way we use it. So that's an important part, too. Uh, let me pray for our time, and then let's jump in together. Father, we recognize that this is your word, and we need your spirit to give us wisdom, to guide us, to convict us, uh, to grow us, and to change us. So I pray that you would just be active here tonight, uh, work through the teacher, work through those who are participating and thinking and uh, asking questions. Allow this night to just move us forward in knowing you more and knowing your word better. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're on page 21, and we're starting with the topic of sufficiency sufficiency. So let's look at the definition in the gray box. It says this, the sufficiency of scripture means that scripture contains all the words of God that he has intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. So just with that first part, what that means is everything he intended the people in Exodus to have, they had. Everything the people in the, during the time of the judges that he wanted them to have, they had. Everything he wants you to have at this stage in history, you have. Okay, so he was intentional with the rollout of his redemptive plan. He was intentional in the rollout of his word over time. And it continues, and it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. All right, so we're going to explore the concept of sufficiency with God's word. Uh, you wouldn't want to use God's word to fix your car. That wouldn't work very well, but if you want it to fix your soul, it's exactly what God's designed and given you to do that. So those last couple sections, those last couple topics are important. It's all we need for salvation. It's all we need for trusting Him. It's all we need for obeying Him. Okay, those things. So it's sufficient for those areas. Well, what about if you break your arm? Is the Bible sufficient for taking care of you if you break your arm? 
How so yes, how so no? No, you can't fix your arm. It's not going to fix your arm. Somebody, some smart Alex said you can use it as a stint and uh, like, and I, that's, but that's not really where I was going with the question. So no, it's not actually going to tell you how to fix, to fix your arm. Um, but, you know, when you break your arm, sometimes it puts you in a really bad mood. And it might change the way that you treat people. So when you break your arm, you can sometimes grow distant from God, or sometimes you can embrace God all the more through the pain, through the suffering, through the frustration. So God's word is sufficient for helping you fall more in love with him with your broken arm. But God's word is not sufficient for telling you how to mend or fix your broken arm. Okay, so there is still a sufficiency component, but we have to be able to recognize which piece it is. Uh, how about math homework? Okay, I have two teenagers, and they do math homework. Sometimes I have to quote God's word while they're doing math homework, right? Because one gets frustrated, they tear up, and the other one plays a video too loud on their phone. Next thing you know, one's yelling at the other one. Now, I'm not really using God's word to help with the calculus problem or the algebra problem, but I'm using God's word to help them negotiate all the emotions and frustrations and the feelings that they're having while they're doing their math homework. God's word is sufficient for that piece of it. But no, it's not going to help you figure out your geometry or your obtuse triangle. Um, <clears throat> what about a broken relationship? Is God's word sufficient for a broken relationship? The mending and reconciling of a broken relationship. How so yes, how so maybe not. Thoughts? Well, if someone's done you wrong, Scripture teach you how you should treat that person. Yeah, so if Scripture... Yeah, perfect. So if Scripture speaks to what's happened in the relationship, the Scripture is sufficient for handling that part of the relationship. What if it's a foster child that you've lost has been taken into the system is now in a place you can no longer get to. That's a little different. Okay, now there's a legal situation. And that's like a real, that's a real situation that people are dealing with all over our state and city right now. So in many ways, yes, the Bible speaks to how we can, you know, mend and reconcile and redeem our relationships. But sometimes it's gotten complicated enough that we need additional information to help us do those things. So it's kind of a complex question. Uh, one more. How about a hormonal imbalance? A hormonal imbalance. Does God's word speak to that? I live with two women in my house. Every month it seems like something's a little imbalanced. Does God's word speak to that? You're just smiling at me, but you're not talking. Uh, it teaches us to how Sometimes we have to work through mm. our situations. Women do. Yeah, I was hoping a woman was going to answer that, Norm, so you're very brave. <laughs> That's good. So, so Norm says that, yeah, the Bible tells us how we're supposed to act even when we don't feel great or when we feel off or when things are really hard. If it's more of an extreme situation, like even after our first child, Jen, uh, got to the point with just some postpartum stuff that things just weren't working right. Like, no matter what we said, no matter how much we talked about or how much we prayed, when she'd read, she just felt like she was talking to the ceiling. Like, it, she just felt off. Um, when she went and saw her doctor, the doctor was able to identify why she felt off and was able to help her. And then it's like once he helped her kind of get that balance back, 
It was amazing how it's just like the doors of heaven opened up and she was able to connect deeply with the Lord again. Sometimes we're in the middle of a very dark cloud. We seek the Lord, but sometimes we do need to go and talk to our doctor just to make sure everything's okay. You now have a broken body. You have a broken body. Sin has, I mean, you are all on the pathway to dust. Like it or not, we're all on the pathway to dust. And that road isn't a fun road, okay? So it's, it's a bumpy road, it's a rough road. And there's gonna be some major ups and some major downs. So the body you have is broken by sin. And the reality of that is whenever your body suffers, your spirit also suffers. If you don't believe me, if you just hand me a hammer and your little finger, I can prove to you that the two are connected. Because when I hit it, your spirit will be affected immediately. You'll notice it in the words that you say to me the moment I hit your finger, okay? So you are affected by that. We all are. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, there, here's a couple verses that talk about how the Bible says it's sufficient and where it says it's sufficient. So we've done this verse a couple times. This is the verse that talks about God's word being God-breathed, but we haven't really talked past that point. So it says, all scripture is inspired by God or God-breathed and is profitable for four things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So if I put it on the board, I'm gonna draw an arrow, it starts us off by telling us which direction we need to go, by teaching us. So even though it's told us which direction to go and how we're supposed to live, the reality is that sometimes, I'm gonna change my red color, we don't follow it. Okay, so I'm drawing a circle here. So sometimes God, God's word has to step in and then rebuke us. We are told which way to go, we choose to go our own way. So God's word then enters into the situation and rebukes us. The next step in that verse is it rebukes us, then it corrects us. It corrects. And then you see the arrow going in the same direction that when I talked about teaching, and it says that it trains us in righteousness. Okay? So God's word teaches us, and when we go off kilter, or we go in the wrong direction, or we go, get into sin, it rebukes us, corrects us, and kind of retrains us how to go back into the direction that God's called us to go. So when we talked about sufficiency, that God's word is all we need to grow in Christ, to obey Christ, this is what we mean. This is the cycle that it takes us through. Verse 17 continues the conversation. It says that it does this, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Adequate, equipped for every good work. Does anybody have an NIV version? that they could read out loud for me, verse 17. Norm, could you? Yeah. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped for every good work in the NIV. So same, same pretty much concept there. So we're taken through this process over and over again by God's word so that we can do what he's asked us to do. Thoroughly equipped, adequately equipped to do everything that God's called us to do. So we see the sufficiency of scripture in being able to do that for us. All right, uh, let's go to 2 Peter. We're going to do verses, chapter 1, we'll do verses 3 and 4. So I'm going to start in verse 3. Verse 3 says this, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Let's just stop there for a second. So, seeing that his divine power has granted to us and he's referring here to 
Not just, just not, it's not like bolts of lightning hitting you, giving you knowledge. He's referring to this book, which has given us knowledge. In verse 4, we'll see that that's the context. But he gives us true knowledge of him through his word. He gives us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. So again, we see there God's word saying that what we need for godliness, what we need to live the life that he's called us to live, comes through a knowledge of him, which is given to us through his word. Verse 4 clarifies that a little bit. It says, by, for by these, and we're going to define the these in a second, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. There's his word. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So it's these great and precious promises that we've been given that kind of sits as a foundation for us to be able to live the life that he's called us to live in the way he's called us to live it. Okay, so that's 2 Peter. Let's, I'm going to skip the next verse. The next question there says, what is the balance between God's special revelation, which is his word, versus his general revelation, which in this context, what I'd like us to reference there in terms of general revelation would be, like the world of psychology has a lot to say about anxiety, about mental struggles that people have, about lots of different things. That would be general revelation. It's not something that was given directly by God, but we have the ability to study God's creation. And from studying God's creation, which includes his people, we've kind of figured out a couple of things that might go this way or might go that way or might be true or seem to be true or there's tendencies or correlations between abuse and this type of personality struggle. Um, so there's that knowledge is in the world. Okay, We've deciphered a little bit of it. So what is the balance between using God's special revelation and using his general revelation? I'm going to reword the question into something very practical. When you go to see a counselor, say it's a Christian counselor, what is your expectation of that counselor? What are you hoping will be their source of information to help you in your time of need? What do you think? God's word. God's word. Okay, so would you call that number one? Is there a number two, or is it only God's word? Their education. Okay. So what's the source of information that they use for their education? General, general revelation. Okay. Do we sometimes get general, general revelation wrong? Yeah, so we have to be careful. So if general, general revelation comes in conflict with God's word, then what? God's word wins, right? In that battle, God's word wins. Okay, and that does happen sometimes. Um, so we just have to be careful with that. Now, if you were to look on my shelf, if I walked you into my office, I have a couple shelves, probably two shelves of just Christian counseling books. And I have them organized in a certain way. The first seven to eight of them would say you only ever use God's word. That God's word is sufficient for everything. Period. That's it. After those first couple books, I get into another group of books that would say God's word is the centerpiece, but it's okay to tap into other resources to gain more knowledge. God's word is central, but it's okay to tap into other sources of information for more knowledge. And if I go a little bit farther in my bookcase, those are the books that would say the Bible's helpful, but really we've learned a ton from general revelation, and the two kind of are equal. Does that make sense? So there's like this, this continuum of where people land. So some would say only the Bible. Some would say the Bible is helpful, but it's not, is one of several things that kind of are sort of equal with one another. 
Where would you feel comfortable landing if you were going to hire a counselor? In the middle? In the middle? Second section? Okay. And that's, that's freedom that we have. Some people would say just the first section, and that's okay. Some people would say the last section. I'd say be careful, but like you don't lose your salvation. Um, and I think a lot of people would probably say the middle. So if you walk into an office and they just never reference God's word, but they're always referencing studies that they've, that they've read, I don't know. Just, just be aware. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying you're in a bad place or you need to run out, but just be aware. Uh, let's look at this. Let's look at this next sentence, and then we're going to jump into some cautions that I have at the bottom. Under no final conflict, it says this. The relationship between God's word and God's world should be complementary in every way. To see inconsistency between Scripture with Scripture is to recognize misinterpretation or insufficient data of God's world. So if we see God's word, word kind of in conflict with what we're learning in God's world, it means God's world doesn't have enough information, or maybe they got something a little bit off. So like we said before, if there's conflict, the trump card is God's word. It wins that, all right? It's your royal flush. It wins. Probably you shouldn't use poker references, but I just did. Okay, it's your royal flush. It wins. So, <clears throat> so here are some cautions just to think through as you're trying to figure out stuff for yourself, for your family, for your children, for your grandchildren. Number one, be careful to not let secular sciences, and what am I referring to there in this context? Psychology, psychiatry. Be careful not to let secular sciences rob us of biblical language, biblical answers, biblical primacy, biblical relationships, and biblical categories. Okay, because there's just going to be a tendency. A lot of the social sciences, people do those, and they don't know the Lord. So when they come, with, come up with ways of describing things, there'll just be ways that are very different than the way you describe things in the Christian world. I'm not saying we have to Christianize psychi psychiatry or psychology. I'm not saying that. But if you walk out and someone says you're codependent, you're codependent, and then they give you three books to talk about your codependency, there may not be bad information in those books, but when the Bible talks about that, it's also trying to help you understand that you're relying on a person more than you're relying on Christ. Your identity is coming from another rather than your identity in who Jesus has made you to be and now lives in you and who you truly are in him. So, both of those things need to be addressed. Like, you want to know that about yourself. You want to see, you want to see yourself from God's point of view, okay, not just from a social science point of view. You want to see both, okay? Uh, anxiety. If you walk into a situation, somebody wants to help you with your anxiety, and they say stuff like this, and again, I'm not saying this is wrong, but all they say is you need to medicate, you need to meditate, and you need to have a lot of really positive self-talk. If those are the three pieces of information they give you. That's something, but when you go to God's word, he says a couple other things also which are really important. Like when the, when the disciples were dealing with anxiety, in John chapter 14, he says, don't worry, don't let your hearts be anxious, for I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you, and I'm going to take you to be there with me forever. So one way of Jesus dealing with anxiety is the reality that we get to be with him forever, an eternal perspective. He also said, don't worry about tomorrow, for each day has enough trouble of its own. In the context of, he takes care of the birds, 
He takes care of the lilies of the field. He knows all your needs before you even ask. Your call is to seek the kingdom, and he will take care of your needs. So that's another context in which we should put our anxiety because Jesus puts it there. He also says what? Pray. Pray. Give all your anxiety to God, and he will give you a peace that doesn't even make sense. It's beyond understanding. So we have to remind ourselves that those things that God tells us about anxiety, if a social science or a self-help book comes in and says, no, this is really how you deal with it, we don't want to take what God says and put it under the rug and just believe this. Medication might be something you absolutely need to do, but it doesn't then take away all the things that God says. If someone goes to the doctor and whatever the doctor says, it doesn't mean that you don't also need God's word. Because no matter what situation you're in, you also want to grow spiritually. So whether it's despair, depression, anxiety, you name it, even if it's bipolar, even if it's you know, schizophrenia, which I've known people who've struggled with that, we still want to run to God's word also. So God's word never gets kicked to the curb. And when the God's word does speak to something, we would have those words have priority, but sometimes it doesn't speak to things. So we're going to need a little help from some outside sources. But when it comes to loving God and learning about who Jesus is, the Bible is sufficient for that. Any questions about that? That was kind of complicated. I've just had to think about it a lot because I've kind of, I've lived in different camps and different worlds depending on what churches I've been in through the years. I've had to argue different sides. It's been interesting. No questions? So the answer to sin is not self-help. The answer to sin is not self-help. The answer to sin is never to ease our guilt, shame, or ease our fear. We can't fix our situation. We can't hide our situation from God like Adam and Eve did. Uh, we must run to Jesus. Only the cross deals with our greatest needs. We live a life of repentance and faith for spiritual growth. Okay? Self-help is a real thing, right? Like people make good money writing self-help books. And I'm not saying everything in a self-help book couldn't be helpful, but the question is where do you run first? Okay, which fountain are you drinking from first? And if God's word speaks to something you're struggling with, start there. Okay, start there and have those be the first words that you drink. Does that make sense? All right. With the primacy of Scripture in mind, the secular study of people can give us examples of how God works, human tendencies, some cause and effect relationships, and some physiological, psychological connections of living with broken bodies in a broken world of suffering. There are, just, there are unique things. If there's a child who is three to four years old, and their parents pretty much just abandoned them and ignored them, they will have a unique set, set, set of tendencies, relational struggles, points of view on the world that the average person will not have. But because we've had time to study enough people who've been in that particular situation, we're just going to have, at this point, it's really helpful to know the things that someone in that situation tends to deal with. And then we go to God's word about those things, and we also go to studies that we've learned on how to help people in that particular situation. Both are helpful. So I love the fact that we're studying people. We're learning the results of particular struggles, pains, sufferings, and abuses. Um, but it doesn't mean that God's word isn't necessary. When it comes to spiritual growth, God's word is always necessary, and we always want spiritual growth regardless of what we're dealing with. That was a pretty hard topic. You guys have any questions about that? That was a lot. Again, I, on my shelf with the two, so I've got the two shelves of those books. I could also, and I haven't done this, but I could fill up two more shelves of people who are just arguing 
between one another on the different points of view in the books. Okay, they argue with each other with power, okay, with energy, and with lots and lots of words. All right. Um, last sentence there says, even with the intercession of a doctor, pursue a biblical understanding of an individual's heart with compassion and with perspective for spiritual growth, health, and renewal. Whenever somebody walks in to receive counsel from a pastor or a Christian counselor, my hope is that they're thinking about the person first. That person may not even know God's word. So just throwing a bunch of verses at them may not be helpful. Okay? So meeting them where they're at, helping them take next steps, knowing who Jesus is, what the word says, and whatever other information we can use to help them is all beneficial. Let's go to the next page. All right. So the last section was about sufficiency. This one's about spiritual growth. God uses his word, his spirit, and his people to grow the believer. Hebrews 4.12, we've talked about this verse a little bit. It tells us that God's word goes all the way down and divides bone and marrow, soul and spirit. In other words, the, the Bible speaks all the way to the intentions and motivations of your heart. It goes all the way down. I think you know this, but I'll say it out loud. Your outward obedience means nothing if your heart is in the wrong place. God is very clear about that. If you go to Isaiah 29, verse 13, it talks about God's people having worshiping lips with non-worshiping hearts, and he hates it. He detests it. He turns away from it in anger. So even though they're doing exactly what he told them to do because their heart's not in it, he has no interest in it. It actually makes him angry, not happy. So we want God's word to go all the way down to our intentions and motivations and to ask the hard questions, to change us, to transform us, to grow us, that our outward actions are consistent with our inward love for Jesus. That's what the next couple of verses talk about. John 14, verses 15, 21, and 23 all kind of say the same thing. Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commandments. If you really love me, you're just going to do what I say. So there you see some consistency, or we would call it integrity, between the inner man and the outer man, between the inner woman and the outer woman. I love him, and I live like I love him. Okay, those two things tend to go hand in hand with one another. Titus 2. Let's go there for a second, if you have your Bible. Titus chapter 2, verses, I think I'm going to do verses 11 and 12, not 12 through 14. Sometimes I think we're afraid that if we give people too much grace, too much grace, that they're going to use it to sin even more. Well, this section talks about grace, and it says something very different about grace. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And referring to that grace, that grace is instructing us to deny ungodliness. I think the NIV says it instructs us to say no to ungodliness and worldly desire and to live a sensible, righteous, and godly life in this present age. So grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Grace helps us grow in holiness and obedience. So giving people grace, pointing people to Jesus' grace, is actually a great way of growing those people. Okay? So don't be nervous to give grace. There's a very similar line of thought in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says, The kindness of the Lord leads to repentance. The kindness of the Lord leads to repentance. Now, in context, it's talking primarily to people who don't know the Lord. But it certainly also can reference and be helpful to those who do know the Lord. We as believers who spend time with our Father, when we see His incredible kindness, it causes us to go to Him and say, I'm so sorry I did that. 
There was no reason for me to treat you that way. I treated you that way anyways, but yet you've been so kind. Lord, I am so sorry. God's kindness leads us to repentance. It changes radically our hearts and our perception of sin in relationship to God. So next we talk about the spirit and the word. The spirit and the word. I wish we had time to do this, but I could do a whole other study or a whole other course, not a a set of core classes, but I could do one class on the Holy Spirit and the Word and look at the descriptions that the Bible gives of each. This one washes me clean. This one washes me clean. This one renews my heart. This one renews my heart. So often the same descriptions that are given of the Holy Spirit are given of God's Word. Like they function very similar, in very similar ways in the life of the believer. So as you're spending time in God's Word and you're asking God's Spirit to help you and to change you and to grow you, I mean, that's, that's your sweet spot. That's, that's how God's designed for you to grow, His Word and His Spirit at work in your life together. Because they're performing oftentimes the same function with one another. The Spirit's using His Word, and the Word is opening you up to the work of the Spirit. Those two things are happening together. Um, I mean, in John 16, this is so interesting, Jesus is hanging out with His disciples, and they're starting to realize that He's going somewhere. It's starting to freak them out. And he says, it is better for me to go because when I go, I'm going to send him, the Holy Spirit. It is better that I'm gone so you can have the Holy Spirit. So if you and I had got a card and we could check on the box, I'd rather be hanging out with Jesus in the flesh or I'd rather have the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, you need to check the second box. It is better if I go away so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think I would naturally check that box. I wouldn't think that way. But when Jesus looks at the situation, he says, it's better that I go so that you get the Holy Spirit. So we get to live in that blessing. We get to live with that relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit as we spend time in his word. And it's, according to Jesus, just as good, if not better, than if Jesus was sitting beside us helping us know his word. Isn't that amazing? I find that kind of a stunning thing for Jesus to say. But he meant it. He wasn't joking around. Hmm. inside of me. Yeah. I don't have that same sense of love that's because it's inside of me. That's a good point. So this is an outward relationship if Jesus was sitting beside you, but with the Holy Spirit is an inward relationship where there's there's conviction, there's feelings of love, there's he's impressing upon you the promises of God, he's reminding you of the hope you have in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is always working in that way in our life. So the doctrine of illumination is kind of what we're talking about here. The easier definition on page 22 is in that gray box. It says, illumination, a belief whereby the Holy Spirit helps the believer understand and apply God's word. That's the easy definition. John MacArthur gives us a little bigger definition. I think it's good, so we're going to go through it. But at the end, it's really just saying what's in the gray box, if you don't understand it. Um, MacArthur says this, of course, the doctrine of illumination does not mean that believers can unlock every theological secret. Deuteronomy 29.29 says that the secret things belong to God. So even though you have the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that you get a lock or a key to open the lock to all the secrets of God. It doesn't mean that. Uh, it also doesn't mean that we no longer need godly teachers. In Ephesians, he's talking to people who have the Holy Spirit, and he says you still need pastors and teachers and evangelists to equip you and to prepare you. 
So even though the Holy Spirit works to give you more understanding of God's Word, He's also working at people that are gifted and designed to help you become even more, go even deeper in understanding God's Word, like teachers and pastors. It also does not preclude us from disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness or from doing the hard work of careful Bible study. Like, you still have to work hard. That kind of stinks, right? The Holy Spirit just doesn't do the work for you. It doesn't, doesn't just put in your head, oh, hey, by the way, this is what, what was happening in Ephesus when Paul wrote the letter. Like, you actually have to go and read that and study that. Okay, he'll help you, but you still have to do the work. You still have to put in the time. You can have a great football coach, but if you don't bench and you don't lift and you don't run, you're still not going to be a good football player. Okay, so you've got the exact coach that you, coach that you need, but you still have to put in the work. It says, yet we can approach our study of God's word with joy and eagerness, knowing that we investigate the scriptures with prayerfulness and diligence. The Holy Spirit will illuminate the hearts to comprehend, embrace, and apply truths that we are studying. So understanding this deep connection between God's word and God's spirit, how might this affect the way that you pray as you spend time in God's word? Does this affect how you pray, what you pray about? in some way, as you spend time in God's Word? What do you think? It's kind of like what you were saying about certain books that you read. You had, couldn't really remember them all, but the Bible and studying God's Word, you have a greater recall of it. And I think that that's what happens in my life. Hmm. I have a struggle reading books that I need to read for my with my uh, occupation and when I study God's word I have a hard time understanding mm. some of the things that I'm reading but the more I spend on that and I call it my one-on-one -on -one training with God where he is teaching me things that normally I wouldn't I wouldn't know mm. uh, there's been plenty of times that I have spent a long time with God and I can be talking to someone else and all of a sudden some wonderful words of wisdom mm. comes out of my mouth and people will mm. say, what did you say? And I don't have really an idea of what just came out of my mouth. Mm. I know that it was very profound, yeah. but I don't know where it, I mean, I do know where it comes from, but I think that spending time with God and reading and counting on the Holy mm. Spirit to teach you those things that you don't understand. That's really good. Help you to absorb into your being what mm -hmm. it actually means and feel it. Absolutely. So the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us understanding, gives us the ability to apply it, and also brings it back up into our heart and mind, oftentimes in moments where we need it, not just for ourselves, but when we need it to help other people. Um, that's really good. This isn't about God's Word, but this is just something I found really interesting. When we lived in Mexico for a year, it was amazing how whenever I went to the grocery store or I went to the laundromat, my Spanish was not very good. No bueno, okay? My Espanol was no bueno. But whenever we'd pray and go on campus and talk to kids, I just felt like I could speak in the past tense, in the present tense. Like I just felt like I just all of a sudden had the ability. Not, I, no one thought I was born in Mexico. Like it's not like my Spanish was that good. But it was much better than when it was at the grocery store. Like for some reason I felt like God would often help us because the Holy Spirit is living and active and he would help. Um, not perfect, and we still have some really major mistakes with our, those are a whole other set of stories. We have some major mistakes that are, anyways. Okay, so my best friend um, who was there, uh, he and his wife were sitting there. He was talking to Octavio on Orlando. 
two of our Mexican students are involved with our ministry. And he, he looks at Octavio, and I don't know what he thought he was saying, but what he says in Spanish is, my wife would like to dance for you. I knew that's what he was saying. His wife understood that way, what, what he was saying. She turned bright red. Octavio turned super red. And he's like, he basically says, I think I need to go now. I think I need to go now in Spanish. And uh, all of us were like, we're like, Dan, you're telling him that your, his, your wife is going to dance for him. Is that what you're trying to say? And he's like, oh, no, oh, no. So, so it wasn't perfect, but we did feel like God would help us, okay? Not perfectly, but he would help us. Um, the last section here is the Christian community and the word. So I'm the groups guy, so I feel like I should spend a ton of time here, but I also feel like I have spent a lot of time here in a lot of different contexts and environments. So I'm just going to kind of go through it quickly. We're called to use God's word to encourage one another. We're called to use God's word to comfort and to help one another. So in moments when we're down, it's God's word is like our source, source of hope that we have to hand to one another. This is not a shotgun approach. It's not like someone's suffering, you walk by, you take your holy shotgun, load them with a Bible verse and walk away. Okay, that's not how it works. Like, you're also called to comfort, to love, to come beside that person. Galatians 6 talks about carrying one another's burdens. That doesn't mean you lob a verse at them and walk away. It means you get underneath the burden with them and you help them hold it up. Like, you get personally involved. But with your personal involvement, God's word then is able to be heard and received with soft words and gentle encouragement. Not someone struggling, and then you walk by and say, God said you should be able to bear whatever he throws at you, and then walk away. Not helpful. Okay? It's probably happened to you. It's happened to me. Um, so not helpful. But God's given us his word to be worked out together in community. All right, let's go to the next page. So if you had a chance to, to do the uh, how to study your Bible with me that we did like a long Friday night, I went through this, this illustration a little bit, but I'm going to take it farther today, and I want to go a little bit more in-depth, and this time I can be interactive. Before, I couldn't be interactive because we had like 300 people in the room. We don't have 300 people in the room, so we can talk a little bit more about this. When it comes to living out God's Word, there are some things that God's very clear. Don't do this. It doesn't matter your context. It doesn't matter your situation. Don't do this. Okay? But then there's other things where God says, well, sometimes you can do this, Sometimes you shouldn't do this. And there's some areas where there's some freedom to make choices. Okay, we would call those gray areas. Now, I'm going to write a cliff here on the board. And uh, we'll say that's Wayne here on the edge of the cliff. All right? <laughs> Wayne's trying to decide what kind of choices he should make in his life, standing there on top of the cliff. The Bible's very clear. I'm just going to pick three because these ones are easier. It doesn't matter the situation. We're not, we're not supposed to get drunk. Like, if we do, we've fallen off the cliff. It's sin regardless of what you think. It doesn't really matter. The Bible is very clear. The Bible's equally clear that gluttony is falling off the cliff. We don't usually think about that one. I'll just be honest. Like, we sometimes highlight this one and ignore this one. If you go to other places, like if you're in a church in Colorado, you emphasize this one, you're not quite as concerned about this one. So part of that is regional. It's contextual. If you're in Italy, you don't even think about that one, but you are concerned about this one, okay? In the Old Testament, drunkenness and gluttony are often put beside each other, so you can't like weigh them and say one's worse than the other. Both of them are off the cliff, okay? The third one I'm going to write on this side of the cliff is sexual sin. If you're not married, 
don't do it. That should, be, that should be a title of a sermon. If you're not married, don't do it. Okay, so now, so all of those are off the cliff. But the Bible doesn't say don't ever have a drink. It says don't get drunk. It doesn't say don't ever have a brownie. It says don't eat them until they're coming out of your ears. All right? So sexual sin. It doesn't mean that you can't say hello to someone of the opposite gender, the other gender. Okay? It just means you, you know, you know what you can't do. You can't do that. All right? So we have to make some decisions on how we're going to live our life based upon this freedom that we have to choose certain things. So let's talk about different people or different ways of kind of getting farther away from that edge of the cliff. With the drunkenness, we might decide, take one step back from the edge of the cliff, and the most we're ever going to have is two drinks. Okay, someone might make that decision. Someone else says, I'm going to take two steps back from the edge of the cliff, and I'll only ever have one drink. Can you see that, more or less? Someone else says, I'm getting way away from the edge of the cliff. I'm just, no, I'm not going to have no drinks. I'm going to mess with it. Gluttony. Someone's going to decide, I will always stop once I get to one half pan of brownies. I'll never eat more than a half a pan of brownies. Okay, that's my, that's my edge. I'm going to stop there. Anything past that is taking me over the cliff. Someone else says, well, I'll do two brownies, no more than that. And this person just says, no brownies. Okay, and you have the freedom to make choices in those different areas. One's a little closer to that edge, one's a little farther away from that edge. Sexual sin. So... I'll start with the middle. There's the old Billy Graham rule, okay? So Billy Graham, if Billy Graham is going, if he gets into an elevator and a woman walks into the elevator to go up with him, he walks out. Like she walks in, he jumps out. Because you, you know, somewhere between that third and fourth floor, that's known for like with the hanky-panky area, so you just stay away from it. So Billy Graham jumps out, okay? So I'm teasing that, but the man was never accused of anything. Okay, so at the end of the day, even though it can sound socially a little awkward or culturally a little bit different than where we are, he was never accused of anything. Great respect there. So there's the Billy Graham rule. But that doesn't mean that someone else doesn't have the freedom to have just a straight up platonic friendship. If it's a dude, it might be someone who grew up with several sisters. He knew all of them well. He knew all of their friends well. Um, I was a personal trainer for 15 years. I worked within 20 inches of women in workout clothing day after day after day for 15 years. I mean, probably 40,000 40, hours of training. Like, if I can't develop a platonic friendship with those people, then I shouldn't be in that business. Now, there's some people, and let's just be honest, and they probably should be here. Like, they don't even make eye contact. No eye contact. I mean, they're walking down the road, and then they're like, oh, oh. I mean, there's no eye contact. Like, they avert their eyes. Now, let's talk about gluttony for a second. For me, I have, this, I have this little fat man living inside of me. I do. And if I'm not good, I'm either a no brownie guy or I'm a whole pan of brownie guy. All right? Like, I don't have a dimmer switch on that. Like, it's on or it's off. So I have a hard time with that one. Um, I don't have a hard time down here, but I have a really hard time sometimes there. Okay, so I just, Sunday morning. Okay, this is probably more honest than I should be. I want to walk in and think about worshiping Jesus. I want to think about what I'm going to teach, what I'm going to say, and the people I'm going to talk to. What I'm often thinking about is, don't eat a donut. 
don't eat a donut. Don't eat a donut. Okay? Because there's donuts everywhere. So I'm trying to think about spiritual things, but I'm really thinking about is don't eat that donut. Don't eat that donut. About 9.30, I usually eat a donut, even though I'm telling myself not to. So now what am I saying? Don't eat another donut. Don't eat another donut. Okay? So that's... So I'll spend a lot of my morning doing that because for me, that's something I'm always trying to not lose control with. If you're someone who, if you make eye contact with someone of the other gender and you know you're gonna run off the cliff, then maybe you shouldn't make eye contact. You just need to know yourself. If you're someone, if you're gonna have one of those and then you're heading off the cliff, then maybe you need to be here. Like you have to have some level of awareness to be able to make these decisions, okay? If you've made a decision and you end up going off, then you need to take a step back. If you can't take a step back, you need to have your community and the people who know you help you take a step back. All right? So let's talk about a couple different types of people here. Let's talk about the blue star guy. Blue star guy says, I am, I am not going to drink. I'm just not going to drink. Blue star guy, I'm putting a blue star by the half a pan of brownies, says, I'm not going to drink, but I'm totally fine with a half a pan. I'll stop there, but I'm totally fine with a half a pan, and I'm a big fan of Billy Graham, so I'm going to live there. So he kind of lives in those three spots. So now I'm going to get my black marker, and we're going to do the black square guy. Black square guy is totally fine having two drinks. He's saying no to the brownies, and he's, we'll make him awkward. He's the no eye contact guy, okay? So black square guy. Black square guy and blue star guy need to be able to live with one another at peace with humility in the same church. Okay? They need to be able to live with, un with one another with humility at peace in the same church. Even though blue star guy doesn't understand why black box guy might be able to have two drinks and black box guy doesn't understand why you know, he's living by the Billy Graham rule and why he's willing to make eye contact with a woman. You should always avert your eyes according to black box guy, okay? We've actually had multiple people leave this church, just so you know. Matt was talking about this in the 12 o'clock class. There will be people who will come into his office, and it might be blue star guy. And blue star guy says, if you don't tell black box guy that he's wrong, I'm leaving the church. So Matt's in the position where he's, whether he either starts drawing lines to make black box guy feel bad about black box guy decisions, or he has to say to blue star guy, very hard way of explaining this story. He has to say to Blue Star Guy, there's freedom there. I'm going to let Jesus speak for himself and the Bible says this, this, and this. Otherwise, we have to have some freedom. Wisdom, but freedom. Okay? And we've had people walk out of the church even recently saying, well, because you're not willing to tell Blue Star Guy that he's wrong, I'm out. Okay? And that's happened. That's happened. Let's talk a little bit more about this. Here, here's something... Here's where we kind of stopped last time we did this in a core class was here. But here's what we forgot to put up there. I forgot to put up there. There's another edge to this cliff. So on the one edge of the cliff, there's drunkenness, gluttony, and sexual sin. On the other edge of the cliff, there's also sins. On this side, in the drunkenness, this person here may judge everyone who drinks. They've determined that their point of view is right and everyone else's point of view is wrong. This would be what we would call self-righteousness or even maybe legalism or Phariseeism, okay? Where they would say, my point of view on this area of freedom is right, everyone else is wrong, and I would judge everyone else for their decisions. 
What has turned more people away from the church? This side of the cliff or this side of the cliff? Both, right? I mean, you've seen both. There are people in the city that won't come here because they're afraid they're going to be judged. All right? And there's probably some people who won't come here because they've seen someone out in public doing something that they don't agree with. So we've seen both things have terrible effects on us. You could have this person, a vegan who says anyone who eats anything other than vegetables is wicked, wrong, and evil. Okay, again, that would be beyond what scripture would say. Jesus made the foods clean, people have freedom to make choices, but you don't have the freedom to judge other people on those choices. Um, this person who says no one, no, maybe, maybe no man or no person should marry. So not to marry. And they decide to go beyond no eye contact to, I'm not even going to acknowledge another gender. I will just live somewhere where there's only people of my gender um, and basically ignore half of the body of Christ. Now, I think you can make that choice and be okay, maybe, but you just have to realize God's called you into a family with brothers and sisters, and you've been called to love the brothers, you've been called to love the sisters. If you choose not to, that just makes me nervous. So even though you might be saying at first, well, in wisdom, I'm going to move away from that edge of the cliff, just realize you're approaching the edge of another cliff. Okay, so there's cliffs on both sides. So we have to be careful in the middle of this gray area of how we act. Both are dangerous. Both are beyond what God's called us to do and to think. Let's go to Romans 14 for a second. I'm going to show you two verses. So Romans 14, verse 2, is, is referring to exactly this concept. How do we deal with gray areas? It says, verse 2, One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So the New Testament has declared that you, can, you have freedom to eat whatever. And some may choose to enjoy that freedom. Some may choose to be very restrictive with that freedom. So if the context there is primarily freedom, which one is deemed more mature, the one who enjoys the freedom or the one who restricts themselves, according to that verse and that verse alone? Say it again. The one who's willing to enjoy the freedom is actually called more mature than the one who doesn't. Okay? I just, I didn't write that. Don't get mad at me if you don't like it. Like, it's just what it says. The ability to enjoy God's good gifts with a heart of love towards Christ and a, love, a heart towards love towards people is important. But verse 3 also has something to say. It says, The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. So blue star guy or this guy cannot judge the guy on that side of the cliff. And the guy closer to that side of the cliff cannot judge the guy on this side of the cliff. Like God just says, you're not allowed. So the moment you hear judgment in these areas that are gray, you just have to be careful. If you hear judgment coming out of your mouth, you have to ask yourself the question, are you drawing a line for someone else that Jesus himself has not drawn? We have to be careful. So let me, let's work a couple more things into our, into our illustration. Because there's a couple more things God has called us to. He's called us to unity. He has. Like when someone walks out of this building because they cannot stand the fact that someone's making a choice that they don't agree with, it breaks our heart because God's called us to unity. 
And he's also called us to humility. It is a scary place to be when you think you're right and everyone else is wrong. You just have to be careful with that. You just have to be careful. Uh, he's also called us to peace, that we can live with one another in peace, and he's also called us to community. Now, a next natural question here is, if, if the guy who's okay having a half a pan of brownies or a platonic friendship or two drinks, if he does that while another brother or sister are in the room and it causes them to go over the cliff in any one of these three areas, what should he do? He should not do it. But here's what I have found that our tendency is, tendency is, is since I don't know where everyone's heart's at, every single person, I'm going to choose to live over here as far as possible just in case so I don't cause anyone to go over the cliff. If we're living in community, then the circle of people that you call friends that you hang out with, you should have conversations about all these areas. Like, ask them. If I have a bottle of wine at dinner, would that cause you to stumble in any way? If one person says, yeah, it really would, don't have it. If everyone says, no, it'd be fun to have you know, a glass of wine, go ahead and have it. But ask, don't assume. Like, don't, because you haven't asked, no one gets to enjoy any freedom. Like, ask and find out. It might be a weird conversation to say, I'm going to have brownies. If I have brownies, are you going to go over the edge? Are you going over the cliff? That might be weird. Um, but you know, have conversations that make sense here. All right? Here, you might have, I mean, just because you might be in a position where you have a platonic friendship doesn't mean that other person is. And if they're not, don't. Don't, okay? For your safety and for theirs. So it just takes a lot of spending time together, talking to one another, and really understanding where each person's coming from. But God's called us to that. He's called us to open communication. He's called us to community. So again, at the bottom of the chart, it says unity, humility, peace, and community. And those are not optional. We're called to live that way with one another. All right, we've got our two sides of the cliff. And we, in the middle, we've got our gray areas. Any thoughts or questions about this? I think a lot of, we'll say denominations, churches, have taken that and didn't stop there in that chart. And even getting into the things that the Bible specifically prohibits and say, hmm. well, it's, I have the freedom to do that. What the Bible specifically says not True. It doesn't show up on that chart. That's true. And there are various, you know, well, we don't know the issues, and some churches have gone way too far on that bottom part to say if we object to anything, mm, we're good just point. humility, peace, and all that, which is not true. We're doing what the Bible says. Yeah. So if God's word speaks with clarity that something is wrong, we can't, for the sake of community or for the sake of the right. peace, say, well, maybe it's not wrong for you. Like, if it's wrong, it's wrong. Mm -hmm in all these categories, okay? Like, just if someone has a different point of view on that, doesn't mean that all of a sudden we say, well, okay, we'll just do it however you want. We can't. God's well, word... Don't be hateful towards them. Show yes, absolutely. Them, which the other side goes too far that way. Right. So we, we, we love them where they are, but we don't say that everything that someone does or believes or says is okay, even when the Bible says it's not. We have to... So this is what Jesus called grace and truth. The Bible says that he came with the fullness of grace and truth. And we need to know when to give grace and when, you, when to give truth. And you usually need to give both in some portion as you're talking to someone. If someone walks in who doesn't even know that they're off the cliff, you don't whack them with the hammer of truth. That's not where you start. It says the kindness of God leads to repentance. 
not the hammer of God. Like, I mean, it doesn't mean that we don't tell them the truth, but we also let them know we love you. God made you. You matter to us. Have you ever thought about this part of your life? Have you ever spent any time seeing what God thinks about this part of my life and your life? And have a conversation, maybe sharing your testimony, not just showing them the verse that says, you're wrong, right? Like share a testimony, share a story, help them understand a point of view that maybe they've never thought of before. So we have to do that with incredible gentleness and kindness and wisdom from a heart of love to win them to Jesus. When you saw Jesus get angry in the Gospels, was he usually angry with, this crew or was he usually angry with this crew where did he tend to get angry so you guys are pointing to this side of the cliff the being judgmental the believing that you're right and everyone else is wrong outward holiness with inward distance from god i mean yeah jesus got really mad at the pharisees because oftentimes people who are broken and busted not even knowing that they're on this side of the cliff they would just heap more guilt onto those people when they really just needed to know about the love of god all right, so we just, it doesn't mean that they're not both sin, they are, but sometimes one side might need more grace and one side might actually need more truth. Jesus always dished out a lot of truth to this side, didn't he? Did Brood of. Did they comment one time, I may be wrong about this, uh, that he actually let people stray doing that? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, because their point of view was is by being very religious, you would earn favor with God. But that's not, what, that's not the pathway to God. It's repentance and faith, not blind adherence to a set of religious rules that you've added to Scripture, which is what they promoted here. That's why how they could be religious with hearts that didn't know God was because of that. So yeah, good question. Um, let me just tell you what the rest of this book includes. This was really all of our content. Uh, after this, and I've given out some of this information before, are just some ideas on how you can study God's Word. A bunch of ideas. Some of them are more of an overview type idea, like how to maybe go through God's Word over the course of a year. One of those Bibles that I suggest on page 25 is like a chronological Bible, which I think I brought last time. That's just an interesting way to do it. That book at the bottom, 30 Days of Understanding the Bible, it basically, basically gives you like big glimpses of huge parts of, of the Bible with some simple terminology. Like what happened in the judges? Three words. What happened in during the time of the kings? Three words. It's really helpful. It's hard to know the minutia of the Bible and how to interpret correctly if you don't know the major themes of the Bible. So if somebody's just starting to get to know the Bible, I want them to go big first. I want them to know big themes first, not the minutia of what happened in Leviticus, but the major themes of the Old and New Testament together. That's usually where I start. So that's when it comes to a reading plan, I usually start there. And then page 26, just for a second, there are my color coding suggestions. I don't know if anybody will actually ever do this, even though I'll suggest it every time I ever teach this. But like, so as I'm going through the book of Romans, like I just have it color-coded so that, I know you can't see it from there, but with my purple pen, I have all my, those questions I told you to ask, what is the author going through? That's in purple. What is the audience going through? That's in purple. So within moments, I can go to the beginning of a book that I've color-coded and I can just quickly refresh myself into what's going on with the author, what's going on with the audience, which helps me interpret correctly. My red pen, I just highlight all the doctrine. I'll underline it and I'll say angels. I'll underline it and I'll say justification. I'll underline it and I'll write whatever that doctrine is on the side so I can quickly find it. In green, I just mark characteristics and attributes of God. 
So if I just want to go back to a psalm or to Job or to anywhere and just think about the Lord, I just go through and just read all the green. I mean, if you just want to worship and you already have it marked in green, just go through and worship, your green, you know, worship through the green verses. I love doing that. In the New Testament, my black is ministry. If I learn about evangelism or discipleship or some of the how-tos of ministry, it's in black. In the Old Testament, black represents sin, disobedience, and judgment. Just because there's not a lot of ministry stuff in the Old Testament. Um, blue is just everything else. If I want to make a note, take a thought, it's in blue. Okay, my teaching notes are in blue. And that just really helps me. So I can go back to a book that I've color-coded and quickly know what's going on and have access to it and be able to teach it and present it quickly. On the very last page, this is our last thing. I just want you to notice our schedule. So this is our last one, studying God's Word. The next one is going to be God Almighty, and we're doing attributes of God, names of God. It's going to be really fun. It's, the book is ridiculous. It's like 60 pages. I spent so much time on it, and we're not going to get through a third of it. So what will happen is we'll get through little pieces of it, and then you're basically going to have in your hands a set of daily devotionals that you'll be able to work through for a month. So it's going to be a really fun time where I'm going to basically get you started and let you do more on your own. Get you started, do more on your own if you would like, is how that book's going to work. And the April 5th got switched to April 12th. The April 5th got switched to April 12th. There's one, there's a women's event here. There's no reason to compete with that. Also, Casting Crowns is in town. I don't really listen to Casting Crowns, but I was told I should not compete against them either. So going to the 12th, I can avoid both of those things. All right, any quick questions before I close this in prayer? Have you ever thought about how valuable your Bible is going to be should God come and take all of us away and the people who are left behind? My Bibles that I wear out and, and I keep them until I have them duct taped together mm -hmm. and I put them aside, but I have marked them all up and I think it's going to be a, a wonderful time. Absolutely. Hopefully I won't have any family members left behind. But if I do, I want them to have this book. That's and a cool thought. To understand it and know what it is and mm -hmm. what they can do to get through that period of time. That's wonderful. So for me, I just have like, I have some of these that are still in wrappers, and then I have a bunch of these I've already gone through. So once I've kind of gotten through it, I shelf it, and I start a new one, and I work through it again. So I can tell where I don't have markings, what I haven't read yet. And I have my mom's. Mm -hmm. So that's a special thing for me, is I have my mom's, I have all her notes like things that she's thought and things that she's you know, worked on in her Bible. So that's a special thing for me, and which I'll pass on to my kids. And hopefully they'll have some of mine that they'll get passed on to my grandkids at some point. So that'll be fun. And I do have one that's completely covered in black tape, barely holding it together, because I put it on top of my car, drove away, and it fell across the road. So it looks like I really read it a lot, but really I just trashed it because I ran over it. Um, with that note, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this group. I thank you for spending time talking about your word and being in your word radically change us, radically change our church where we are just devoted to your word, that we love your word because through your word you grow us, you change us, you transform us, cause us to fall more in love with you. When we fall more in love with you, we simply obey you and enjoy you and praise you all the more. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you all for coming.